chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Luke 2, 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. In the end, in the end, in the end. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, this is a very familiar story, a very appropriate story for us to look at at Christmas Eve as we, as we long and look forward to the coming of Christ, not only his return, but as we remember his first coming. It's one of the most familiar, if not the most familiar. Um, but it's important for us not to miss how unexpected and unassuming this story is. What we celebrate every single Christmas is that God has visited his weary and hopeless people to provide rest and hope for our hearts. We celebrate the fact that light has penetrated the darkness, that salvation has come, and all of that has come through a less than extraordinary birth. But that's how God's grace works, isn't it? God more often provides for exactly what we need than he does for what we want or what we expect. God's grace comes to us when we least expect it. And God is often near to us when we expect him to be far away. I'm sure this year has caused you to feel more weary and exhausted and weak and and helpless than maybe you have in a long time. You know, not only have circumstances far outside our control negatively impacted us. I also believe that this year has revealed a lot about our own hearts that we have just ignored for a really long time. Our limitations have been revealed. We are far more vulnerable than we realized. Our fears have been revealed. This year we felt a lack of control, and to be honest, if you're like me at all, there have been times you just haven't responded to them very well. You know, there's been conflict and knee-jerk reactions and a lot of grumbling. And our need has been revealed. You know, we love feeling self-sufficient. It's, that's part of the American dream, right? You don't need anyone else for anything. You've got it, you know, and you don't need any help from anyone. But this year has shown us just how dependent we are on God. And if you thought you could just be a solo Christian, I hope this year has taught you that we are so dependent on one another in order to thrive as humans, Now, you may be here thinking, you know, what would an eternal, holy, glorious God want to do with me? Someone like me who is weak and weary and habitually sinful. You may feel that such a God, you know, who has come to unite himself with people may have done that, but he wants no part of you. This is why Christmas is so, so precious. We turn our hearts to Bethlehem and we see the grace of God arriving on the scene in the most unexpected yet beautiful way we could ever imagine. 
The coming of Jesus is the good news that God has provided exactly what we need. God has come to save us. And the way that he came to save us is proof that even the most sinful, undeserving, weak, and weary person in this room is not too far from God's grace. So here's all I want us to do tonight. Take a few minutes to just reflect and meditate on the coming of Jesus through the events of his birth. Now, we just read chapter 2. We read a little bit back in chapter 1. But if we had read all of chapter 1, we would have seen how the birth of Jesus was foretold. You see, Luke tells us that the angel Gabriel came to Mary and he told her, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then the next thing we see in Luke chapter 1 is is this description of the birth of John the Baptist. We learn that John the Baptist is going to be the one who prepares the people of Israel for the coming of Jesus. Now Elizabeth, John's mother, when she gives birth to John the Baptist, there are neighbors and friends and relatives nearby, and everyone gathers around, and they're rejoicing. And it's, I mean, it's a big to-do, and John's birth is met with this immediate public proclamation and adoration and celebration. They're amazed that someone like Elizabeth, who's been barren her whole life, would have a son. It was a glorious and special event. And so as we start to see this comparison, this offsetting of John the Baptist and Jesus the Throughout Luke 1, when we get to Luke chapter 2, after John the Baptist has been born, we expect things to really ramp up. Because if there was a glorious celebration of the messenger of the Messiah, what about the Messiah himself? We expect this grand event. If John's birth was, you know, the undercard or the, the opening act, Jesus' birth is the main event. And so as Mary goes into labor, we expect a dramatic and public announcement. The king is here. He is on the way. We expect crowds to gather outside the home of Joseph and Mary to, to wait with eager anticipation for the birth of this child. And yet, we find nothing like that in Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2, we find a meager, uninspiring, and short description of the birth of Jesus. The circumstances of Jesus' birth could not have been more ordinary or humble. Let's, let's look at them one by one. First, there's a national census. A national census starts in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, that is just so abrupt. You know, you have this wonderful praise from Zechariah that Philip read for us a little bit earlier. And then, you know, it's just this, this abrupt, unexpected decree for an empire-wide census that was sent out from Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the day. And this census was for everyone to return to his or her hometown to be registered. You know, the Romans, they, they utilized censuses like this for tax purposes, you know, not too different from, from what we do today. It was very common, and since Joseph was, you know, his family was from Bethlehem, that's, that's where he would go, and Mary would go with him and the child that she was to give birth to. And it just so happens that there's a lot of fulfillment happening here. Right at the time when the ultimate son of David is going to be born, his birth mother has to make a journey to the city of David, to Bethlehem, and we always focus on that part of it. But do you notice how ordinary this journey to Bethlehem actually is? It's not as if Joseph and Mary just, you know, they started reading the Old Testament scriptures and they were like, you know what would be really, 
really kind of cool? If we had the baby in Bethlehem, like the scriptures say, you know, not in Nazareth. If we went to Bethlehem and had the baby there, that's what we need to do. No, they didn't, they didn't make any of these plans. They had no choice. They had to go to Bethlehem. They, they didn't sit around. It was so ordinary. They were going to their hometown the way that everybody else in the region was going to their hometown. It's so ordinary and unassuming. Okay, now think of the journey to Bethlehem itself. The distance between Nazareth, Nazareth and Bethlehem is about 90 miles. 90 miles okay so the mother of our lord you know we, we she's she's pictured we have the magnificat in luke one she's pictured as a saintly figure just so precious you fall in love with mary you know in, in luke chapter one and then it's like here's what she gets to do she gets to journey it's like i don't know eight or nine months pregnant all the way you know a 90 mile journey that's where she gets to go to bethlehem and it's just it's just so ordinary it's so unassuming what, what a difficult journey that would have been i mean i can't i can't even imagine how difficult that would have been for mary to, to make that, that trip. Now, now think about Joseph and Mary themselves. They're so ordinary. They're just average parents of Jesus. Okay, they, they're relatively unknown. They're average. They're, they're basically an insignificant couple in Israel. You know, in every other way than, you know, the holy privilege that the Lord grants them, they're just like everyone else. And, and compare them to John the Baptist's parents. John the Baptist's parents... You know, Luke goes to great lengths to tell us who they are. I mean, they're significant people. They are holy and blameless. Zechariah was a, was a priest. He had status and prestige. Joseph and Mary, you know, they're favored by God here, but they're very forgettable in the eyes of the world. Jesus was not born into the home of a prophet or a priest or a king or even a noble politician. Jesus is born to a virgin and her husband, the carpenter, you know? It's just so ordinary. It's so unassuming. Now think about Bethlehem itself. You know, they're journeying to Bethlehem. And, you know, by the time that Jesus is born, Bethlehem, even though it's the home of King David, which is a big deal, by this point in history, Bethlehem is forgotten. You know, it's, it's insignificant. It's like a little tent village in Israel. You know, it's, it's old little town of Bethlehem with the emphasis on little. I mean, it's, it's a nothing town. And, you know, then obviously we think about that shameful nursery that, that Jesus had. Jesus is born, he's laid in a manger, a feeding trough, and it's because there was no place for them in the inn. And, th and even that highlights the poverty of Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary arrive, and what are they going to say? There's no room anywhere, and they're like, Excuse me, I know we're late, but she's actually carrying the Messiah. I mean, you know, they're just going to laugh at him and say, Go out there and lay with the horses or whatever, you know? We're not, we're not going to take you seriously. It's, they had no ability to pull strings. You know, they can't just show up and magically someone makes room for them. They're, they're unassuming. They're ordinary. It's very humble, this beginning. Even though Jesus was a king, he was not born to royalty in a palace with crowds waiting to celebrate. He was born in obscurity in a forgotten city to average parents. And his birth is shockingly normal, average, and ordinary. Last week, we talked about the you know, explosion of glory in the skies as the angels came down in the fields where the shepherds were. But over in Bethlehem, that's not what it looked like. There are three takeaways here as we think about the, the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. And the first is that Jesus' humble birth shows us that God actually came to us. And it also shows us that he's actually coming back. Now, again, this is a detail that's just so easy to miss. Why does Luke share the birth of Jesus with so many cumbersome details? 
I mean, Luke's announcement of Jesus' birth does not exactly roll off the tongue. You know, you have to concentrate when you even read it. I mean, you've got this, again, a beautiful, beautiful praise song from Zechariah, and then you get to to chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. It's the most boring, I mean, boring, boring. This is how the Savior of the world is introduced to us, these ordinary, you know, words. I mean, you know, this is the most important moment in the corpus of Christianity, We might expect something a little more compelling as an introduction to our Savior. I mean, you know, we don't even get a Star Wars, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's compelling. You know, you you have to keep watching it scroll. Started introducing the boys to Star Wars. I have to read the words, you know, as it starts to scroll because I can't read yet. And it's so fun. You know, I get the accents out. I just, I really go for it. And, you know, or not even a fairy tale, though. Fairy tales, most of them, what? Once upon a time. You know, great, great, just compelling, interesting. Why such a stale introduction to Jesus' birth with so many less than interesting facts? I don't care that Quirinius was, what does it say? I even forget. This was the first registration where Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Who cares, right? That means nothing to us, that Quirinius was the, you know, governor of of Syria. You know, what's it matter? Why does Luke do this? Well, the only answer we could possibly give for Luke giving all these details about Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Syria, and a census is because that's how it happened. That's how it happened. You see, Luke wants to show us that the birth of Jesus isn't a legend or a myth. It isn't just some fabricated story that's meant to inspire us or entertain us the way a fable would or Star Wars. The birth of Jesus actually happened at a specific moment in history and we cannot rush past that because if Jesus was really born, if he was really born and he is who he says he was, that means that God actually did come to us and here's why that's so important we don't need an inspiring story, that's not what we need we got plenty of them They're awesome, they're helpful to us, but it can't save us. It can't root out the bitterness that's in our hearts. It can't rescue us from everything that's around us. It can't save us, not not inspiring stories. We can't change enough to make things better. There's too much sin in our hearts. There's too much suffering in the world. We need God to actually come and actually rescue us and actually restore the world. Jesus really was born, he really died, and he really rose from the dead. And I love the fact that Luke goes to great lengths to put these facts in here for us because it emphasizes this is not just some story. Jesus was really born, which means that your sins can really be forgiven. Okay, second, the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth also reflect the humiliation of the incarnation. So think about this for a second. Think about the contrast between the birth's commonness, how ordinary the birth was, and how great the child is how ordinary the birth is and how great the child is god chose to identify in the humblest way possible with those that he made in his image you see when god the son you see we believe jesus is eternal he is god he's the second person of the trinity when god the son took on human flesh he took on human flesh as a helpless baby who would grow up a carpenter's son but, we, we, you know, we emphasize that. But even if Jesus had been born to a prophet, a priest, or a king, his coming would still be humble. There would still be humiliation in his dissension from heaven. 
In coming to us, Jesus humbled himself. His entire mission to save humanity is a mission marked by humility. The incarnation means that God stooped down. He came down to us. He was not one of us, yet he became one of us to bring us back to himself. Paul conveys this in Philippians 2, famous passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the birth of Jesus among sinners in, in, that, in that manger, in that stable in Bethlehem so many years ago, it foreshadowed his death for sinners. The baby who was laid in a manger would one day hang on a cross. His birth was step one of his state of humiliation. The baby who was wrapped in swaddling cloths would one day be stripped at the foot of the cross. Jesus took part in our suffering, and then he paid for our sins. So as we think about Jesus and these humble beginnings, it foreshadows his humility in dying for sinners like us. But third, one final thing to take away here. Jesus' humble birth reminds us that Jesus, though eternal God, comes near to sinners like us. Comes near. Jesus is the light of the world that entered into our darkness. So Jesus will not run from your sin. He will not. He will not be repelled by you. He isn't turned off by your weakness and your weariness. You can have the audacity to be open with Jesus. He will not reject you. He draws near to those who don't have everything together. Jesus entered our weakness and he took on our suffering. He's unstained by sin, but Jesus took part in every circumstance and consequence of life in a fallen world. So if you are here and you are weak, you are poor, or you are hurting, if you are weary from everything we've faced this year, you need to know that Jesus is near to you. And also, Jesus knows what it's like. That's why there's redemption and reconciliation and freedom and healing and forgiveness available in Jesus. Because Jesus draws near to sinners. He doesn't come and invite them just to make their way to him if they would just clean their lives up enough. Jesus is far too worthy to stoop down to our level, yet in his love, the God who is far beyond us came down and came near.